Can you hear me today? I am not Steve Horton. I'm what you call a minute man. Uh, Pastor Horton recognized that he needed to be in the Philippines. And can you hear me? Everything okay? Okay, good. So um, he couldn't make it. So here I am. And uh, our topic is called Christian Zionism. Wow. Now, I have to admit, this is not going to be your average sermon, for me anyway. Um, it's still in the process of being associated in my brain. So, as I am cur currently studying this, and I really think this is awesome, it's just, it's just a really awesome study. And what got me going in this study was the fact that we're having all these people running for president and all the things that they say, and all the political parties, and the, and the verbiage that, that they've been talking about. And one of the things earlier, when one of the senators was uh, running uh, for his party, he made this statement, and this, true me, this is an apolitical sermon, okay? So I'm neither Democrat or Republican. But he made this statement, and it went like this. He says, I am for the Jews. We are, we are biased towards the Jews, and we are going to support the Jews no matter what. And that just really left me confused. Not because I don't want to support the Jewish people, um, but why? Have you ever wondered why? And so, you know, um, I, I was just sitting in a cafeteria, and, and one of my colleagues came and sat down with me, and he's uh, evangelical. And he, had just, he was telling me that he had just taken this tour to the Holy Land. And it was just wonderful, you know, going to these different places where, where Jesus had, had been. And, and seeing all these different sites and, you know, just, just the concept of being able to correlate it with the Word of God. He said it was awesome. It was a wonderful experience. And it was organized by his church. And it wasn't just a few people. There were several hundred. And so at the end of the tour, they said that they met at this hotel. And there, Benjamin Netanyahu, I know I butchered that, who was the equivalent of our president, came and talked with them. I go, whoa, what was that all about? And basically, he was just telling them, he was thanking this group of people for their support. You know, if you didn't know that, America sends millions of dollars to Israel. Millions. Literally. And, and sometimes, uh, that's just not the government. That's religious organizations that send these millions of dollars because of their belief. So I said, wow. Yeah, I said, why do you guys support the Jews so much? We need to study. He didn't want to study. It was quite obvious he didn't want to study. But he said, well, you know, I'm kind of busy and blah, blah, blah. But it would be a good study. So I decided to study on my own. So I've been buying books on Israel and and talking to different people. And I just still am confused. Well, not now, but I was confused uh, because I wasn't getting direct answers. So I started, you know, looking at going to, I went to the library, I studied different books, and this is what I came up with. 
Evangelicals believe that the return of Jesus is dependent on the Jews going back to Israel. Did you know that? Evangelicals believe that Jesus is not going to come back until the Jews return to Israel, accept Christ, then the Antichrist is going to deceive them, then the battle of Armageddon is going to start, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed, Jesus is going to come. Now, in between that, there's the rapture. It's either before or after, but it's before the tribulation. Now, I was kind of taken back on that because, you know, I'll study with anybody who was willing to study. But I couldn't get anybody that was a lay person like me because I don't want to study with a minister. I want to study with a person. (laughs) They're all people. I wanted to study with somebody like me, you know, just trying to learn, okay? So I was questioning why What is this push about the Jews? And then I realized, I realized how powerful this group has been in America. And your tax dollars have been going over to support the Jewish nation for religious reasons. You didn't know that, did you? Well, anyway. So, I opened... um, I opened a book. Let me see if I can find my literature here. I got some paperwork. And I just wanted to say some, some, uh, a few things here. This is called Christian Zionism. And first I need to define what Zion, Zionism is. Zionism is the belief that all Jews need to go back to Israel. This belief really began a couple of hundred years ago, but it's really taken root in the last 150 years as our message, the 1844 message, became prevalent. So was this message. So was this push. It happened almost simultaneously. So what was happening was, there was this group of people who were saying, the Jews need to go back to Israel. They were scattered all over the world. Is that a mystery? It really shouldn't be. But they were scattered all over the world, and what we noticed was that everywhere they were, they were being prosecuted, persecuted, excuse me. They were being persecuted. There was a large contingency of Jews in Russia. And this was like the early 1800s. And they would force them to live in ghettos. Then every so often, they would go in and kill them. You know, when I read this, I just really couldn't believe this was going on. Then I read earlier, prior to the Russians doing this, that the Jews that had been dispersed, say, to Spain. When was that time that Columbus discovered America? 1492, that's ridiculous. But that same year, the Jews were expelled as a people from all of Spain. They were were given three months 
to completely leave the country or die. You, you look at, if you start studying the history of the Jews, it seems like everywhere they went, they were persecuted. They were scattered everywhere, and because of their difference, people just couldn't gel with them, and they were persecuted, persecuted, and finally, this push came to take them back to Israel, and in 1948, after World War II, they set up this statehood in Israel, and they called it Israel. Now, I know you're thinking, well, what's so significant about that? In Genesis 12, the promise was made to Abraham that he would be given Canaan. Let's look at that real quick, because they use this. It's, it's kind of interesting. Genesis 12, it says, um, and I'm jumping down, two and three, verse 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your, your name great, and you will be a blessing. And this is rather important. It says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we interpret that blessing as us receiving Jesus, don't we? We received Jesus through this line of people. But this is not how it's totally seen. The blessing that some people, some people take this verse and they say, as long as you are supporting the Jews, you are blessed. And so this is why a lot of Americans support the Jewish nation. This was really big in 1979. You've heard of the moral majority, Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was the first person in America to try to organize a political group that would save money and send it to the Jewish nation. This now is from Pat Robinson. And it says, why do evangelical Christians support Israel? He starts off by this conversation with the Queen of England, and he says, the Queen of England asked this person, how do you know there's a God? And the guy thought for a minute and he said, because there, because there are Jews. When I thought about that, I go, you know, that's right. When you think about a group of people who've been persecuted so much, almost to annihilation and are still here and still viable, so wow, that is a good point. The Jews, and where are they? Where are the Jews settled? They're in Jerusalem. They're in that area. We call it Palestine now. But what happened was, and we're going to go through this, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they changed the name of that area to Palestine and Syria. So it was the Romans that actually renamed that area. And so now that these people are coming back to, quote, their homeland, Pat Robinson is saying, this is the will of God. And God's prophecy is being answered here. 
his prophecy is being answered here. I just want to read some of the things that he, that he said. Uh, yes, the survival of the Jewish people is a miracle of God. The return of the Jewish people to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a miracle of God. The remarkable victories of the Jewish army against overwhelming odds and successive battles in 1948, 1967, and 1973. I looked up those battles, and when I read about them, it was a miracle that Israel survived because it was the whole area around it that had formed a league to destroy them. And yet Israel prevailed. They were able to not only rout their enemy, they took territory. And this is the territory that we're fighting over today, that they're fighting over today. So the question I ask, why does he still believe in the Jews? And it's because of the prophecy. It's because of the belief that if, when the Jews go back to Israel, then, then they are going to accept Christ, maybe. Then they're going to be deceived by the Antichrist, and then that's going to bring in the second coming. And that's what they're looking forward to, the second coming of Christ. And the verses that they use to establish that is, are the same verses that we use to establish our thoughts. And so, basically, I want, you to, I want to take you back biblically now. I want to take you back to Deuteronomy again. I know we've been there before. Deuteronomy 28. Because there again, God gives the blessings and the cursings and the blessings was, were on whether they were going to be faithful or not. All right? He spells it out. And it's really interesting as we go through this, the different things that he says. Now, we've already read about the blessings. Uh, I don't really want to go into that. Well, but I want to go to the cursings because verse basically, uh, it extends for several pages. And it talks about uh, curse shall you be in the city, curse shall you be in the country, curse shall your basket be, curse shall your flocks be, uh, you, you will get the plague, you'll, you'll be struck down with consumption. Uh, it goes on and on and on, but then it really starts talking about uh, what we're going to talk about here. It says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. On your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce continents, which does not respect the elderly nor favor the young. Verse 52, they shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God are given you. 
Let's see here. There's one I really want to. It says, um, there's one particular verse that I really want to read here. It talks about, it talks about them being besieged. It talks about their enemies encompassing them. It talks about what the people will do to each other in the besieged. It talks about the mother eating the children. It talks about the fathers eating their family. It talks about all the things that happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem was besieged. Here it is predicted verbatim. And, and it also talks about them. Here it is. I just found it. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you nothing. And you shall be plucked from the land which you go to process. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the people from one end of the earth to the other. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest. Catch this. This is predicted. This is so awesome. He says, and among these nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it was evening. And at evening you'll say, oh, that it was morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart, and because of the sight which your eyes see. That's Deuteronomy 28. That was written a couple of hundred years before it actually occurred. So, so now we're, we're, we're looking at Bible prophecy and we're looking, we're, we're not looking at Bible prophecy, we're looking at what God said would happen to his people if they did not obey. Okay? Now, Deuter uh, Ezekiel 36 is used to justify the promises uh, that were given that the Jews would go back to their hometown or their home nation. So I looked up Ezekiel 36 and I just want to read a, a certain verses with you. It says, and I'm looking at 36 verse 7. And this is, this is Ezekiel now, and the time of Ezekiel is doing which guy? Who was he a contemporary with? Daniel. Did I hear that? I, th I thought I heard Daniel. Yeah. He was contemporary with Daniel. So this is still before Israel went back. Remember, Babel the Babylonians now, Babylonians have, have overran Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. They've taken God's people into captivity. And now, here's Ezekiel making this prophecy. And it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord, God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountain of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel 
for they are, are about to come. For indeed, I am you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled in and stolen. I will multiply men upon you, the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall inhabit it, and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabitant as in former times, and do better for then at your beginning. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And I'm just jumping over to verse 17. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwells in their land, they, shall, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their ways was like the uncleanness of a woman in her uh, customary impurities. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And this scattering was done by Babylon, okay? When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have gone out of his, out of his land. But I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, said the Lord God, when I have hollowed in you before their eyes. And I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all country and bring you into your own land. 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. It is these texts that are used to justify part of this um, prophecy. The other one is Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is behind me. We're going to turn to Daniel 9 and we're going to look at that. Daniel 9 and you remember, Daniel 9, Daniel was praying. Beginning of Daniel 9, he's praying because the prophecy, the 70-year prophecy is coming to a close, and nothing appears to be happening. So Daniel now is agonizing with God to fulfill his prophecy. But at the same time, the angel comes, and he, and he tells him the vision that's in chapter 8 as well. He gives him the completion of the vision, chapter 8. And he begins like this, verse 20, chapter 9. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Here it is, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who is, who is, um, this is Gabriel, the angel, talking to. And he's talking to Daniel. But who is he talking about? The who? The Jews. Seventy weeks have been determined. And we used our day equal a year principle. 
So 70 weeks times 7 gives us 490 days. We convert that to years, and we get our 490-year prophecy. So it was this time period, this time period, and we're going to read more, that was given to the Jews to do certain things. And it's mentioned here in the next verse. It says, well, in the same verse, it says, these are the things that were supposed to happen during the 70-week or 490-year prophecy. It says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecies, and to anoint the most holy. Now, when you look at this, how was Israel supposed to do this? How were they supposed to finish transgression? How were they supposed to make an end of sin? How were they supposed to make reconciliation for iniquity? Who could only do that? Jesus. So what was Gabriel saying? He said, Israel has 490 years to accept Christ. It's clear that's, that's the only way that you could look at it. And then to seal up visions and prophecies and to anoint the most holy. 25 gives us some, some starting dates. He said, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. If you can, if you can see this uh, slide that I have up here. To restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. He gives us a starting date from the time, let's see, to restore and to build Jerusalem from the time that command went out. And so when we look at this, we look at 457 as our time. We go over seven weeks. Seven weeks gives us the actual building up of Jerusalem. Then we look at the next group of days till we get to 8037. That's a 62 weeks plus the seven weeks takes us to AD 27. Is that a significant date or what? What happened in AD 27? Jesus was anointed. That's when he began his gospel. So when you look at this prophecy, is there any confusion about this part? Not really. It says here then, the next week, halfway through the week, sacrifices were going to end. And how many years did Jesus minister? Three and a half years. He died on the cross. Did sacrifices end when Jesus died? Yeah, it did. Well, then there's three and a half more years. And at the end of, eight, at the end of that 70-week period, did the Jews accept Jesus? When the gospel went to the Gentiles, was it because the Jews were not willing to let it go? Why did the gospel go to the Gentiles? 
because they rejected Jesus. To this day, the Jews do not believe in Jesus. To this day. So here's this dichotomy here. Here's this dichotomy. We have a group of people who Christians support. And Christians believe that they're an integral part of their prophecy. Those people themselves look at those people as nutty. They really do. The tours that go on in Israel, they're not put on by Christians. They're put on by Jews. Jews who do not believe in Jesus. And so when they hear about all this support, they ask, why? Well, part of their, part of their the evangelical concept is, is that the Jews are going to convert over. And that's, that, that is huge. Is that possible? Can it happen? Yeah, it can happen. But what does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? How did Jesus view them towards the middle and end of his ministry? And the only way we can look at that is to go to one of the gospels, and let's just take Matthew. And just look at the conversation that Jesus initially started off with. When he started off, especially when he gave his parables. You look at Matthew 13, it talks about the sowing of the seed. It talks about the wheat and the tare growing together. It talks about pearls, hidden treasure. Jesus now is trying to impress the people of the significance of heaven. The significance of wanting to go to heaven. Towards the middle of the chapter, though, Jesus has now had several interactions with them. Uh, and the conversation begins to change. His parables change. For instance, he gives the story of the fig tree found in Matthew 21. And he comes up to this fig tree and it's full of leaves. And so he goes to find figs, but there are no figs on the tree. Now, normally, if you have leaves on a fig tree, you have fruit. That's a given. So Jesus cursed the fig tree, and, di- and it died. And, and, and an example was, this is going to be the result of Israel pretending to produce fruit, but not being fruitful. He gives the parable of the wicked vine dresser. In same chapter, 21, verse 33, he says, here is another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Remember, we told this story in the Old Testament. It was slightly different. In the Old Testament, God was the vine dresser. But in this story, the vine dressers are the Jewish nation. It's his chosen people. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servant to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his service, beat one, killed one, and stoned the other. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, 
and he didn't likewise to them. And then all of, then the last of all, he sent his son to, to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? It says, and, and, the, and the Jews answered themselves. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their due season. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruit of it. He starts telling parables now about their rejection. And he doesn't end there. He tells another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sends out servants and calls those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed him. And when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servant, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was half filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. So he said to them, friend, how, how, how did you come in without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him in hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. The, the reason why I'm reading this, Jesus now has turned his conversation from the lost lamb, the lost coin, um, the prodigal son. He gave those parables. Those were in the middle of the chapter of Matthew. But now he's given parables of rejection. He's given parables that because you refuse to accept my words and accept me as Christ, you will be rejected. We turn a little bit further later on, and here's Jesus now. He's preparing to ride into Jerusalem. He's called his disciples, and he said, okay, go get me a donkey. And, and put... Uh, Tell the owner that I have need of it. He, they bring the donkey. He gets on a donkey and he's riding into Jerusalem. Now, this is only a few days before they crucified him. Okay. He rides the donkey into Jerusalem. And so people start throwing their coats down in the, in the streets and they start praising him and giving glory to God. It says that the scribes and Pharisees on the side said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They cannot be saying what they're saying. And Jesus said, no, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. In Luke, he gives us a little bit more detail. In Luke, what happens when he hits the Mount of Olives 
and he looks down over the city and he sees the temple. Everybody's just praising God and, 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 and just having a, a wonderful time because they're thinking that Jesus is now going to become king. And so they hit, this, they hit this level and they look back at Jesus and he's crying. And it wasn't like a... It wasn't one of those. It was like... <laughs> he was in agony. Jesus was in agony. And they're looking at him like, what is going on? What was going on? And you read the great controversy. And what you see, uh, what it tells us is that Jesus now is looking at the city. And he's looking at the temple. But what he sees is the Roman Empire totally eclipsing the city. He sees the Romans go into the temple. He visualized the slaughter that went on. And then he says, as he drew near verse, I'm, I'm reading Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 41. He says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially to this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the people of God. There's one more thing I want to read to you. And this is, at, this is Jesus at Pilate's Hall. He's before Pilate, and they're making all kinds of accusations against him. We're in chapter 23, I'm in Luke. And Jesus doesn't say a word. And so Pilate questions him and questions him. He says, he finally answers, he said, then Pilate asked him, saying, are you king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, you know, I really don't find any fault with this man. But they were more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching, through, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back. But this is the real interesting part here. Pilate gets a note from his wife, the second visit. After he questions Jesus, he says, I don't find any fault with this man. And he finally says, he contrives this thought. He says, I'm going to release a prisoner. And he chose the worst prisoner he could, which was Barabbas. And he presented Barabbas to the people, thinking that they would choose Jesus. And to his surprise, they told, chose Barabbas. And he says, I'm going to read this because I, I, I can't... Uh, He says, I'm going to have to read, <laughs> um, he, he, he says, 
what shall I do with Jesus? And, Jesus, and, the, and the people cried, crucify him. And so he washes his hands and he said, and, and, and this is the verse, I gotta find this. This is the verse that, um, that really set me back. He says, the, the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, let his blood be on us and our children. If you study the history of the Jewish nation, that literally came true. In AD 70, the Romans came, they totally destroyed the temple. They took the Jews and dispersed them throughout every country. And as I said earlier, in every country that they went, they were persecuted. It didn't matter where they went. It didn't matter where they went. One of the last things I want to bring to your attention is this. We say that Gentiles took the place of the Jewish nation. Not that they cannot be saved if they turn their hearts to God. But as a favorite nation, that does not exist anymore. So, the question was, the question was, are we then better than they? Are we better because God now has chosen us? Paul answers that in Romans 11. Romans 11 says, Brother, my heart desires and pray to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So anyone who believes in Christ are at the same level. Verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord of all is rich to all who call upon him. There is no distinction. Verse 11, but to Israel he says, verse 21, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Then he gives the analogy of the olive tree. He says, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said. 
Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And let's say that again. Because of unbelief, the Jews were broken off. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, because towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also said, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. What is Paul saying here? That the Jews can come back. And that, but we are the equivalent of the Jews. They called it this, this displacement theory. But they haven't been displaced. They say this theory is anti-Semitic. How can you say we've been displaced by God? But God, we didn't say it. The Bible said it. But the reality of it is this. Nobody is above God's law. And nobody is more special than one group or the other. So here is our opportunity. It says to those who believe, God grafted you in to the main vine. But you're, you came from a wild vine. You, can, you, can you get that? <laughs> you weren't the natural branches. But the natural branches had to be removed because they wouldn't produce fruit. So where do you stand in this? You stand just where they stood. What is your requirement? What is God's requirement? God's requirement is this. That he lives in you and me. And that from that, fruits are produced. Nobody is fruitless. Nobody. In John 15 it says, those branches which did not produce fruit were removed. And if they removed the Jews who had the promise of God, had the promise of Abraham, the promise was that they would be God's people forever. Then why would he not remove you or I if we're not allowing his spirit to work in us? Let's bar heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grafting. We're thankful for your mercy. We don't deserve your mercy, but you are so gracious as you grafted us in and you allowed us to be part of your kingdom. We don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to look back at the Jews and say, aha, look at them, they messed up. We have to look within our own hearts. Father, we're asking that you'll live in our hearts, that you will produce fruit by the grace of your spirit living in us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.